Within the depths of the strip mall of the damned lies a decrepit video store, long since shuttered. Past the dusty shelves, empty save for spiders, spinning their patient webs, beyond the ancient batwing doors guarding the sepulchre, where once were hidden the perverse and heretical, a secret society assembles to scrutinize those films which are rumored to drive viewers to madness and dissolution. Draw closer, dear listener. Let your trembling ears sup upon the eldritch knowledge of the Cinemania Society. We, the, the brethren of the Lens Palm, do convene to judge this offering of the story so far. The shouts is a psychosexual drama slash horror movie from 1978 by Polish art film director Jerzy Skolomowski, featuring Alan Bates, John Hurt, Susanna York, and Tim Curry, and was adapted from a 1924 short story by famed English writer Robert Graves. It is a story within a story, told by mental asylum inmate Charles Crossley, played by Alan Bates, to Robert Graves' self-insert character played by Tim Curry during a cricket match they are both scoring. Crossley outs himself as an unreliable narrator and proceeds to tell a fantastical story he says is true, but one which he also says he alters the details, and also one which also involves two people present at the match, Anthony Fielding, played by John Hurt, and Rachel Fielding, played by Susanna York. During this supposedly true story, we learn a few key details. Anthony and Rachel share a dream about an aborigine magician. Rachel is a neglected housewife who has lost the buckle from her shoe. Anthony is a church organist who pursues dreams of a prog rock masterpiece and is, luckily, having an affair with a cobbler's wife. It is a period of moral starvation. Crossley sabotages Anthony's bike during a church service so he can have an excuse to bait Anthony into a conversation about magic and the idea that human souls might take refuge in objects outside the human body, like stones or trees. Anthony waves him away and fucks off to play around with the cobbler's wife. Crossley is next seen lurking at the Fielding's house where he appears to be working some magic on Rachel via her missing shoe buckle. Acts 2 and 3 will follow. With that, let's rejoin the Conclave still in session. Well, was um, a generally a good guy. If you needed a, a terrifying ancient man crone, then you got John Hurt. <laughs> <laughs> Even when he was 26 years old, he was still a terrifying ancient man crone. Yeah, he was, he, was, um, he was born with a face like someone just drew googly eyes on a deployed airbag. <laughs> thank you everybody and thank you brother andre for that uh, sterling examination of one of our sinister cinemania suspects and we're about now to move on into act two of uh, the shout brother methuselah you may take the projector out of the room again you're not going to call for it a second or maybe third time though are you of course not, we promise. Because if I put it away, it's quite an elaborate thing to do and it might hurt me quite severely. Yeah, sure, yeah. okay, whatever. Keep that stiff upper lip, Brother Methuselah. All right, I'm wheeling it out now, all right. Here I go. Somebody hit the lights? All right. God, I hate Brother Methuselah. Yeah, he's the worst. Where did he come from, anyhow? He just I... turned up, he's part of the furniture. He was in the video store when I first acquired it. I think he might be a victim of Cinemania. I found a, a nest in the air ducts that appeared to be made out of chewed newspaper. Perhaps he was already living here. You, you know I can still hear you. Wait, he can still Does hear? Does it sound like we care? Brother Zachariah, now yes. it's time for us to continue. Present more of this offering for our consideration. <clears throat> <laughs> you dumb motherfucker <laughs> I know, no, no doubt, no doubt If I must shout Shout, I will let it all out This yeah. is a film we can do without 
Act two. Anthony returns home to find Crossley hunkered menacingly out front. Crossley informs him he's been on a hiking holiday and hasn't eaten for days. They exchange some strained pleasantries. Crossley invites himself to lunch, an imposition in which Anthony agrees in the most insufferably English way. There is immediately some low-level flirtation between Rachel and Crossley. From the start, some polite busting of Anthony's chops. Crossley takes the piss out of Christianity's view of the human soul as being nothing but a speculation while calmly mashing a wasp with his thumb. First nettles, now wasps. This guy's a real masochist. Rachel asks Anthony to pour Crossley a glass of wine, but he declines and instead asks for water, which he proceeds to drink in an ominously sacramental way. He abruptly asks to wash his hands and is pointed upstairs. Yeah, I just want to point out that... Um... This film is yet another example of why you should never trust a man who drinks with both hands. God damn, no kidding. Yeah, that was creepy as fuck. Like, <laughs> he's acting as if it's, you know, he's, he's taking communion or something. It's just water. Oh, well, I read that as he was acting like a two-year-old. <laughs> oh, that too. Is there a difference? I mean, yeah, it, it goes without saying you shouldn't <laughs> trust a man who's acting like a two-year-old either. That's just weird too. Well, we have Sir Hertz and Master Bates, so Crossley goes on full creeper mode and sniffs around upstairs, quite literally. After inspecting the bedrooms, including the mattresses, then washing up, he gets personal with Rachel's stockings hung out to dry in the bathroom, fondling and smelling them before returning. Crossley sits down and dishes up some absurdly small amounts of food for a man who claims he's been without for days. Clearly, this is bait to provoke dialogue from people accustomed to normal human small talk. Crossley exercises some superb skills in conversational judo and trolls the buildings with increasingly outlandish claims. Chiefly, Crossley claims that he spent 18 years in the Australian outback, once had an aboriginal wife, and that he committed infanticide multiple times per aboriginal law because he knew one day he would leave and wanting nothing of him remaining behind. He delivers this final part as he proceeds to explode Rachel's wine glass with sympathetic vibration by playing his own as a glass harp. He then asks if that shocks them. Rachel replies that they have not managed to have children and leaves the room shaken. So I, I would say there, there's this surprisingly progressive moment in the film where he tells them that, you know, that he's been out in the outback for 18 years. And then John Hurt lands this like incredibly racist comment like, oh, did you even take an Aboriginal wife? And he just lands like a complete lead balloon. He's like, yeah, I did actually. Got a problem with that? Of course, then it turns out it's like, oh, I also killed like my 18 children and I'm really bad with glassware. <laughs> and like, so like it kind of ruins the moment. But for just a second, I was impressed with this movie. That was I mean, the only I don't, <laughs> It, Crossley obviously claims that everything he does is in accordance with Aboriginal law. Now, I'm no Aboriginal lawyer. I don't claim <laughs> to have passed the Aboriginal bar. I'm not a practicing Aboriginal solicitor at law or anything like that. But I kind of think that some of these claims he makes, they're probably not in line with any Aboriginal code of conduct what? if you were to actually look into it. No. It's an important point to make because, I mean, we have somebody who is a white dude uh, who has already outed himself as an unreliable narrator now proceeding to describe the practices of, of a group of people who had been quite 
viciously subjugated by, by British colonialism. So a wise person would assume anything he says is pure and utter bullshit. Yeah, right. Because And on top of that, we have now like a long, pointless, rambling, unreliable story within a long, pointless, unreliable, rambling story. Yeah, but the people of the time, and by extension, the viewer, has no real way to refute any of this. He just says, oh, yeah, this is Aboriginal law. We don't know. I mean, we have no way of, of quantifying any of this. This is just a random thing he's come out with, and we're just expected to go along with it. Yeah, it's I like... Mean, actually, I, we could probably Google it, but they didn't have that back then. Yeah, it's like, did you have an Aboriginal wife? Ha ha. Well, actually, I didn't. We had a kid, and I had to kill it. Aren't you a dick? You know, it really is that. Yeah. This aspect of psychological domination is something that bears a discussion, I think, uh, but not at, not at the moment. Uh, All right. Getting back to it, <clears throat> Crossley justifies his actions by describing Aboriginal infocide as being the only natural death in their culture, every other death being caused either by violence or sorcery. He and Anthony then discuss Aboriginal pointing bones, which Crossley claims to be the most common cause of death in the culture. Then goes on to describe the chief magician committing kidney theft via psychosurgery, as well as opening his own abdomen with a sharp stone. As he's describing the chief magician as wearing his 18th century naval tailcoat, Crossley dramatically faints into his meal. He says he suffers from migraines and asks to have a lie down. Sorry to interrupt, Brother Zachariah, but he says specifically that he suffers from migraines. 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 This is a very important point. Yeah, it's an early, early example of the migraine two movement. I remember the migraine epidemic of the 1970s. I was there. He says he suffers from migraines. He said he suffers from migraines. And asked to have a lie down. Rachel offers the sofa, but Anthony offers to put him upstairs in the spare room. Just as planned. <laughs> <laughs> they help Crossley upstairs, who is next seen shirtless <laughs> and spying on Rachel from the upstairs window. <laughs> God, he's creepy. Oh, oh. boy. <laughs> and with, with with that, I'm I'm just I'm getting a message. One one moment. One moment, brothers. What is it? What is it, you ancient wrinkly bastard? I'm prepared to bath. It's ready, sir. It's one moment. Uh, with that, I'm being told that the time of cleansing is once again upon us. Prepare the mysterious bathing tools as we enter another deep bath of commercial enterprise with these messages. Right, I'm quite uh, quite chilly after that deep, intensive cleansing, but I feel ready to continue, as all of our brothers do, I'm sure. And now, let's continue with uh, The Shout. Anthony goes back to dicking around in a sound studio and chain-smoking, as one does. Rachel comes back in and talks about how much she dislikes Crossley. She has the overall attitude you might expect from someone whose sexual needs are being attended to by a prog rock John Hurt. Anthony goes to wish Crossley good night as Rachel instructed and finds him sitting nude on the bed. 
but Crossley still invites him in anyways. Crossley resumes his story about the aboriginal magician who slit his belly with a sharp stone and pulled open his skin in order to summon the reins. I suppose he could teach Toto a thing or two. Oh boy. He also informs Anthony that this magician taught him the terror shout, which he perfected over 18 years, which he can now use to kill instantly. Anthony's expression of skepticism is met with a challenge to his imagination. His failure therewith Crossley implies as being linked to Anthony's failure at music. Crossley then shows off his abdominal scar and minds tearing open his own skin. Anthony exits after asking Crossley to leave again in the most circumspect and English way possible. Uh, no, I was going to say, it's like, just so insufferably, if there's anything you need before you leave, I mean, like, if this was an American, you'd be like, dude, just get the fuck out. Get out of my house. Go. Like, <laughs> no, in, to- in England, this is a declaration of absolute <laughs> fucking war. <laughs> Pardon me, sir, but would you, you please? <laughs> well, I'm not leaving, so there's nothing I need. Perhaps a biscuit. Perhaps I could fetch you another cup of tea before you go and reach the bus, which you will no doubt be wanting, sir. <laughs> I won't need anything because I'm not planning to leave. So you don't need to get me tea or any or a biscuit or anything. I'm, I'm going to have my nice little lie down here. It's like a courtesy feedback loop. That was the vibe I was getting. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, And in the 1970s, this would have been seen as an absolute abrogation of all social responsibility. British, yes. Your manners are only second to the Canadians. We own them too. A wholly owned subsidiary of the United Kingdom. Anthony is shaken and goes downstairs to have a little tantrum in the yard. He knocks his bike over and fails at splitting some firewood. The chunk of wood flies off the stump and smashes one of his windows. Note, if you're pissed off, handling an axe properly isn't the brightest idea. He brings in a basket of wood to build a fire across from a couch where a book on Stalin is conspicuously placed. And this is our art director working (laughs) his creative choices. Right. Crossley, (laughs) now having dressed, makes a show of leaving. And Anthony, in what he probably believes in his polite little English heart is the most cutting piece of sarcasm, tells Crossley he would very much like to hear his shout. Crossley declares he is going out, but keeps Anthony on the hook by inviting him to follow. (laughs) So I I had a question about this. As he's following him out the door, Anthony takes this little figurine from over the door. I don't know what that figurine is. I don't know why he takes it. I don't even know what it's doing there. Like, did anybody recognize it? Oh, well, yeah, that's just a standard thing. We have figurines over all our doors. It doesn't bear any further scrutiny. Don't worry about it. Are they, the, uh, are they of the are they of the queen or <laughs> oh they're of the queen various members of the royal family figures from history daleks you know that kind of thing <laughs> exterminate exterminate all right <laughs> jesus is it jesus is it jesus uh, it might have been jesus actually yeah, I, I just want to point out one of the things that i actually got a kick out of about this is how um like expertly uh, Crossley basically just uses people's polite inclinations against them. Like he weaponizes their intent to be polite and kind to people. But again, yeah. this is a, a, something we can dive into more later. 
He wouldn't last in New York, but he might do well in the South. Oh, New, lo- New York him. doesn't last well in New York. <laughs> oh, yeah. You're just walking down the street in New York and a poodle is shoved off a fifth floor window and hits you in the head. As Dennis Leary said, from then on, you're known as the Poodle Man. As Anthony and Crossley walk the dog to the shore, Crossley informs him that if he shouted now, Anthony and his wife would die, as would anyone or anything that heard him. He also, it's like the using of the title of the movie in the movie dialogue, The Shout, which is very polite considering it's a movie called The Shout. There's very little actual I mean, shouting. right from the start, we've been waiting for some shouting. We've yes, been exactly. <laughs> he says that he can do it out on the dunes in the early morning when nobody was about and that Anthony should bring some wax to stop up his ears. Anthony still expressed skepticism, Pah. but he's heard some sounds because he's a musician and crossley tells him that the shout will kill him from the looks of john hurt a stiff breeze would probably kill him the stiff breeze is coming shortly (laughs) the stiff breeze that's his next movie crossley awakens anthony the next morning by watching him and rachel sleep crossley sets out on a brisk pace to the dunes anthony physically unfit follows with some difficulty john hurt never plays the most robust of physical specimens muscles like tissue paper bones like powdered milk to quote andy slack is I that mean, seeing this guy <laughs> run is quite the spectacle i mean seeing john hurt attempt any kind of physical activity at all is something of a spectacle he deserves a medal when he successfully raises a crumpet to his lips <laughs> I'm just saying, I, I got many a flashback to Hebrew school and learning the chicken dance when I watched him run. Yeah, so Brother John Zachariah Hurt. knows exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> yes. John Hurt, this Hebrew guy's... chicken dances his way up the dunes like you yes. do. <laughs> this is a guy whose definition of heavy exercise is smoking two packs. <laughs> Although we do I see smoked, him. I, I had very good exercise. I smoked two, tw- 40 cigarettes in the same city. I guess the most uh, unbelievable thing we see him do is raise a cricket bat in this movie. So, oh, this is David Lynch's favorite actor, by the way. This is like literally his favorite actor of his life. John Hurt. Why? John Hurt. Yep. He says this <laughs> He's is a great actor. actor David Lynch. Yeah, that's just, true. Uh, yeah. He loves actors who look like they're about to dissolve into primordial goo. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. Anthony sees Crossley playing with objects from his pocket. First, a pointing bone. <laughs> no, not that one. The bone, the bone, then, the bone. <laughs> Rachel's shoe buckle. He stops up his ears, then crossly admonishes him to put his fingers in his ears when he wants him to stop, not before he begins. The shout is delivered with extreme dramatic physicality as well as intense eye contact. Its sound is enhanced by the peak of 1970s audio technology. A nearby shepherd boy and his sheep are all struck dead. Anthony is knocked off his feet and rolls down the dune. This is probably a stuntman. If the real John Hurt had done this stunt, he would probably have collapsed into a pile of ancient broomsticks and cigarette ends. Let me pause here to remind you, unreliable narrator, folks. You were getting sucked into the story, weren't you? That is way more of Alan Bates's oral cavity than I ever want to see in my life. <laughs> that guy, like, you could count his fucking fillings. I know. And oh, it, yeah. Uh, 
Yeah. It pauses. It lingers there for quite a while too. And then they cross cut yeah. to him giving you extensive eye contact. It takes time. <laughs> it's like seriously what I expect your last sight is if a zombie comes at your face. I mean, th this is a seriously intense moment. I mean, just having an actor yell directly at the camera and stare down the barrel of the lens at you. You don't really see that. This is the sort of thing that would be handled with special effects nowadays. But That's no, true. they just said, listen, guy, you're going to stand there we're going to film you do something incredible and he just does and, and yeah and true. we're just going to like stick the camera down your throat like it's a medical examination <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and to be serious though the, the, the sound is quite horrible and is quite intense like i mean they 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 peg those needles on that VU meter. Uh, Brother Andy admonished us to, to turn the volume down. And I, I was glad I took his advice. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is, an, this is important. While laying dazed on the beach, Anthony randomly picks up a stone. Suddenly, he has what could only be described as cobbler thoughts. And not of the dessert, but of fixing shoes. Cobblery. Cobblery. The Cobblery. thoughts and desires and actions of a cobbler. A, yes. a maker and repairer of shoe-related items. Not what? a maker of shoes. That would be a cordwainer, a cobbler. One who repairs shoes. One who nails soles to shoes. Is there some kind of metaphor of shoes, soles, mysticism? Ah, you see? Yeah, see, it's all coming together. Shoes, mysticism, shoes, shoes, shoes on have the feet, souls. Feet, yeah, souls, feet, rounding. Uh, I feel, I feel like I'm Nicolas Cage from uh, National Treasures with his. Guys, I think all of you are suffering from foot in mouth disease here. Oh, no, stop. no, ah, boo! Oh. Uh, That's ridiculous. Can we give him the boots? <laughs> oh, That's, uh, 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 there was no you, sneaking around that one. Can you throw us probation for both of you brothers? <laughs> can you throw us to commercial please <laughs> all right hang on hang on um, <clears throat> at which point i must stress that the filth and grime of celluloid soap scum collects once more in the drainage receptacle of brotherly debating we must once more pause in order to scrape our fleshy flanks clean that was a visual Jesus. image. Jesus yeah, Christ. that's right. I prepared that shit. I had that shit ready to go. We return again, clad only in bathrobes and nothing else, as we prepare ourselves for Act Three of The Shout. which I will now present to you all. Speak for yourself, <laughs> Brother Andy. I'm still wearing my fez. It must have the fez. Well, obviously, obviously, you're all wearing fezes. That doesn't even need to be said. We're all wearing fezes, fez even while entirely nude. Fezes in bathrobes. Bath I don't close mine. <laughs> well, I wear an extra not... medium. <laughs> <laughs> Nor should you close it. We enjoy each other's bodies. That's an entirely part of the point of the Cinemania Society. Anyway, moving on. Act three. From this point on, Crossley has made himself very much at home. Anthony is practically bedridden due to the effects of the shout, the shout, the shout, 
and so Rachel is free for a little quiet domestic bliss. She has changed her opinion of their guest and is getting very comfortable around him. Very comfortable. Lots of slow lingering looks over shared cups of tea. Crossley even repairs Rachel's bike, showing a command of basic simple machinery that completely eluded poor John Hurt. This is an English flirt. Assuming <laughs> yeah, he's a genius when it comes to sound gear and electronics, but a failure when it comes to basic mechanics. We switch back to the cricket match in progress. Crossley is still narrating. He takes that pointed bone from before out and starts whittling at it with a penknife. It is implied that he is in some way affecting the bowler, putting the man off his stride. Back within the story, and Crossley is looking around Anthony's studio again, he has a sensual need to touch things and experience them with his hands. He makes a point of very slightly adjusting the position of objects, making the space his own in some way. By the time Anthony is starting to feel capable of leaving bed, Rachel and Crossley are sharing a joke over tea in the garden. He is now looking down on them, the way Crossley had been watching before. Their roles have reversed. John looks very, oh, what's the word, wounded by the situation in some way. Anthony goes for a walk, and Crossley gives him a look which says it all. It's that, I'm going to have sex with your wife, matey, look, which I'm sure we all know so well. <laughs> as soon as Anthony leaves, Crossley has sex with his wife. And Rachel is totally into him at this point. It's probably the best sex she's had since her husband decided to devote an entire room of their house to his prog rock odyssey. I mean, this is also a laugh since John Hurt did play Caligula a few years before. Evidently, his own psychotic kinky days are behind him. Oh, well, Alan Bates is there to fill that void. Right, literally. Anthony, yeah, <laughs> Anthony had left in order to do some shopping and get Rachel's shoe repaired. Now, remember that buckle. It's important. The cobbler mentions having a funny turn at the time of the shout. <laughs> happening. And from the description, it's clear that when Anthony was in contact with that random stone, the cobbler felt an agonizing sense of being turned inside out. Anthony has retained some of the cobblering knowledge. Things have started to reach breaking point when suddenly everything changes. It seems like Crossley has just decided to up and leave and everything is going to be normal again. Cut back to the cricket match. The patients are getting overexcited and are yelling at the game. Crossley is becoming visibly agitated and finding it hard to keep himself together. I just want to note that the whole mm. time in this cricket game, he's in a tiny cabin with yes. Tim Curry, carving yes. a bone very visibly. Tim Curry carving. says nothing. No, Doesn't he's just notice. Even... He's just, so I'm, I'm taking this to mean that he is a good, proper Britishman and paying complete attention to the cricket game. I Are... don't think you're really paying attention to just how absorbing the game of cricket really is. I mean, if you're scoring a cricket match, you've got no... No room in your brain space to look at what the guy next to you is doing. He could be carving a bone. He could be carving the face of a person. You'd have no be, way of knowing. He's stabbing you in the arm. Just nope, nope, not paying attention. I gotta, I gotta score this sucker. Yeah. Or maybe he just knows and has enough street sense that when a man is rambling at you about some weird story holding a knife and a sharp stick, then maybe you should just shut your mouth, nod, and just pretend, stare in front of you, like we all do on the subway. That's... A very British approach to knife-based rambling, yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. 
Okay. I just wanted to, to clarify for everyone the cultural context in which this is occurring, because otherwise it might seem a little weird. Back in the story, we see that Crossley has left the house, chucked away the buckle. The dog follows him out, never to appear again, and in so doing, knocks over a bottle of milk. The camera lingers on this, so it's probably the art director's allegory to something sexual, probably. Uh, it was so obviously that the dog was walking in front of it and someone behind him pushed over the bottle of milk. Hold everything, guys. That dog just knocked over a bottle of milk. That's proper artistic, that is. It's a linger on that. Linger <laughs> on that. Should, should, we, should we hang on that, Gavin? Should, should we just, yeah, like, hold on? Zoom in. Zoom in on the milk. Let it linger. Right, right, Let it right. spread. Yeah. yeah. No, I thought he, I thought they did a zoom on it, but they didn't. It just they just let it linger. As yeah, no, 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 zoom. no zoom, down, down, zoom, down, zoom, down, zoom. <laughs> just linger, linger. This, you got this to linger film, on the milk. This film is full of really random freeze frames before they fade to the next cut. Like, it, I, it's completely inexplicable. I mean, um, the freeze frame is probably a new invention at the time. They just really wanted to get their money's worth. <laughs> no, I'm just picturing uh, something very Herzogian. If Herzog directors, I wanted to linger on the milk. Uh, this is sexual allegory. I want to make sure that you see this here. Look are at you, milk. You... Look at the way that the milk spreads. Milk is a complicated business. <laughs> anyway, I, uh, I, I love uh, just the fact that the, even the dog betrays John Hurt. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and even, John Hurt. even his beloved, like, you know, he golden cannot retriever. even just make like, Screw a you, dog dude. stick with him. Even a dog. <laughs> he inspires yeah, no loyalty from anyone or anything. Yeah, Crossley rips off everything out of this guy's life, including his fucking dog. Like, just the dog's like, <laughs> <laughs> just wanders off. Oh, boy, <laughs> we're going for walkies. I think the dog is just waiting for the first opportunity to jump that ship. It's not often that the dog is afraid of outliving the master, let's just say. <laughs> anyway, Crossley is tossing away the buckle, has lifted his enchantment over Rachel. We're lured into a sense of security, you might say. Anthony can get back to his studio and life can go on. Anthony is trying to use all his sound engineering hardware in an attempt to recreate Crossley's shout. But seeing as John Hurt has already given the scream of his life's performance in another movie that year, he's doomed to failure. Out of nowhere, Crossley returns. Suddenly, he's back in the kitchen, and Rachel is literally kneeling at his side, kissing his hand. The enchantment is back on. The sense of security, it was false. Betrayer! Crossley and Anthony have a tense English confrontation. Anthony tells Crossley he should stop being so unreasonable. Crossley tells Anthony to go away. It's a bloodbath. Stirring stuff. God's sake. <laughs> Struck by an idea, Anthony heads to the beach. He's looking for Crossley's special stone. Apparently, everyone in the village is living in such a state of moral starvation that their souls have all retreated to the seaside. Finding the precise stone, he uses the last of his stolen cobbler knowledge and hits it with a shoe. The stone breaks apart, as presumably does Crossley's soul. Is that what the hell was going on? That's exactly what the hell was going on. Try and keep up. I mean, yes, that's what was that was going on. Crossley is stricken 
and outside the police have arrived. They're looking for some nutter that killed his children. Crossley shouts one of the coppers to death, but is taken into custody. Apparently, the shout is uh, no defense against an organized police force with cars and an actual judicial system behind them. Anyway, my now it's raining at the cricket match. The patients have collectively lost their shit by now. The match is in chaos. Crossley is getting more and more agitated and poor Graves realizes that he's in a tiny wooden box with a raving knife-wielding lunatic. He manages to crawl out of the window as the chief tries to calm things down. Too late. Crossley lets out the shout. One last time. As there's a lightning storm on, there's some deliberate confusion as to whether the explosion, flames, and subsequent deaths were due to the lightning striking the scoring box or by Crossley's shout. But either way, this is how those bodies ended up being laid out at the beginning of the film. Rachel finds Crossley's body and retrieves something from around the neck. It is the buckle. At long last, she is free. Oh my God, that's what that was. That made absolutely no damn sense. He had the buckle the entire time. Uh, this, this movie made so little sense to me. I just... All right, Brother Zachariah. Look, look, it's a simple story, easily told. Uh, boy meets boy and girl. Boy curses girl. Girl rejects boy who challenges other boy who shouts at boy until he has to go straight to bed and think about what he's done. Boy enters into pseudo-masochistic tryst with girl while boy seeks soul starvation stone and strikes it squarely with shoe, shattering stone and sending soul into screaming, stark, raving stupor. And also it's all lies. I don't see how we could have put it any more simply than that. I mean, come on. Uh, that it's a tale as old as time, Randy. The one thing that I really dislike about this film is for a film that is presented to us in the narrative device of a cricket match, I have to ask you, Brother Andy, is this film cricket? Well, I have to say it's a lot of things, but the one thing it actually is quite accurately is cricket. That that pretty much is a cricket match, yes. Uh. You're saying the wickets are not sticky. It is not, in fact, a sticky wicket. It is indeed cricket. It is cricket. It is cricket, wicket. no sticky wicket. The wicket is not sticky. It is cricket. That's what I'm saying. Uh, yes. Did the bees have... Did the bees have something to do with the wicket being sticky? The bees have nothing to do with cricket. How would, how would bees even influence a cricket match? They can't lift a cricket bat, even if they all work together with their little legs. I don't even think upon the cricket bat with their little wings fluffing in the wind, trying to move the cricket bat around. That I don't bat. even understand how John can influence a cricket match, let alone no, that, a bee. No, that, that's fair enough. <laughs> that, that does challenge strike, belief. Strike him with a cricket ball. It'd be like watching a bad game of Jenga go wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so, the, now the ending of this film, like, well, not, not the very ending where she finds the bodies and so forth, but like where the lightning strikes and there's confusion and mass chaos. It's not dramatic so much as it's basically a Monty Python sketch, right? Yep. You have a little cabin on wheels being pushed by a naked man wearing nothing but a jock strap and cow shite. 
just pushing it along while Tim Curry desperately tries to crawl out the window and another man dances around chanting random lines from the Tempest and suddenly it's on fire and everybody's on, you know, exploded. Yeah, yeah. And then the big, match. And then the big foot of, <laughs> and then the big foot of God comes down and Right, basically, <laughs> basically. Then the camera pans over, and there's John Cleese behind a desk, and he says, "And now for something completely different." Right, yeah, which it's, it's practically a documentary at this point. I mean, <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. Well, no, no, I'm actually saying that that felt like the most aesthetically cohesive part of the movie. <laughs> well, yes, because they just filmed an actual cricket match and uh, <laughs> just went with what went on, and this was built just- a film around that. This was just Britain in the 1970s. 1970s is Britain here. I was going to say, Tim Curry is like literally trying to crawl out the window, like get me out of this film. (laughs) He's just like... Tim Curry has just decided he's going to... Tim Curry has decided he's going to escape from this mortal realm that's been corrupted by capitalism and go to the one place where he can play cricket according to communistic principles. Space! (laughs) <laughs> the one place where cricket hasn't been corrupted by capitalists <laughs> yeah, he's just had enough of the film he's like nope 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 time for a luxury gay space communism yeah, <laughs> yeah all right, i think all right, it's i think it's interesting that out of this movie and you know the rocky horror picture show this is the weirder of the two films Harken, brethren I fear that once more the cold grip of cinemania winds around our spines and testes. We must go to recess before everyone loses their minds. That episode of the Cinemania Society featured Andy Slack, Ethan Ireland, Zachariah Burks, Daniel Scribner, Andre Luke Martinez, and special guest, The Trash Shaman. Produced, mixed, and mastered by Ethan Ireland, Graphic design by Andy Slack. Music by Carl Casey at White Bat Audio. Visit our website at thecinemaniasociety.podbean.com and check out our social media feeds. We're on Twitter at TCS underscore Cinemania. And if you like what you heard, please rate and review wherever you found us. Mention us on social media or find us on Ko-fi to throw us a few bones. We love to make fun stuff for folks, but it isn't free. Anything and everything helps. Coming soon, the Cinemania Society will be creating pieces of video media, short films and the like. So stay tuned, Cinemaniacs. The Cinemania Society is a production of the Cinemania Society, LLC.